0: The Money Metals Midweek Memo, news and commentary relating to sound money, the precious metals markets, and the economy. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. So every once in a while, my wife and I get sucked into this show called My 600 Pound Life. And if you haven't ever seen it, it chronicles the weight loss journey of grossly obese people. And I always find it astounding and a little morbidly fascinating how much food these poor folks put down to maintain that kind of weight and to even keep gaining weight. Now, we don't watch the show a whole lot, but every time we do, we've been struck by the fact that there is somebody enabling this eating behavior. In fact, most of the time, these people are so obese that they can't even get up by themselves. They can't move around. A lot of times they're bedridden. So somebody is buying, cooking, and serving all of this food. And we're always like, why? Why do you keep feeding this poor person? Just stop. But the fact of the matter is, bad behavior generally requires an enabler. Think about it. This is true of addicts, abusers, all kinds of people. They're, they're doing bad things. And, and I'm not trying to shift the culpability away, but the enablers have their own problems. And you know, when you watch the show, you realize that there's all kinds of, of psychology in play and personal dynamics. It's it's interesting and sad at the same time, I guess. So just hold on, we're getting, we're, we're going somewhere here. You know who engages in a lot of bad behavior? Government. And government has an entourage of enablers. Today, I want to focus on one particular bad behavior of government. Borrowing and spending money. Now, we all know that the government has a massive spending problem. You know it. Democrats know it. Republicans know it. Everybody knows it, but nobody really wants to do anything about it. Here are some numbers just to put this into perspective. Through the first four months of fiscal 2024, and keep in mind the fiscal year actually starts in October. So through the first four months of the year, the federal government ran a $531.86 billion deficit. That's a 16% increase over the same period in fiscal 2023. And fiscal 2023 gave us one of the biggest budget deficits in history. These massive monthly and yearly budget shortfalls are pushing the national debt higher at a dizzying pace. On December 29th, the national debt eclipsed $34 trillion dollars. That's trillion with a T. It eclipsed $34 trillion for the first time ever. When Congress effectively eliminated the debt ceiling back on June 5th, the national debt stood at a mere $31.46 trillion. Then, as of February 9th of this year, the national debt stood at $34.2 trillion. So it's just growing exponentially. Now, it's hard to wrap your head around $34 trillion. I mean, what does that even mean? How much is $34 trillion? To put it into a little bit of perspective, every U.S. citizen would have to write a check for $101,234 in order to just pay off the debt. And if you look at taxpayers, because of course a lot of citizens never pay actual income taxes, every American taxpayer is on the hook for $264,090. So get your checkbook out and start writing, right? Or if you want to look at it another way, $34 trillion dollars is the is it's more than the total economies of China, Japan, Germany and the United Kingdom combined. It's a lot of money. Now, when a lot of people talk about the ballooning national debt, you know, they'll blame t- cuts. They'll say the government isn't bringing in enough money. We need taxes on the rich or taxes on corporations. Got to bring in more money. That's not the problem. The problem is the federal government is a little bit like a drunk dude up late shopping on Amazon. The Treasury reported $477.32 billion in receipts last month. That was a January record. So, it actually brought in more money in tax receipts and other revenue streams than in any January in history. And yet we still had a monthly budget deficit. That's because the government is addicted to spending money. It's not a revenue problem. It's not because of Trump's tax cuts or whatever. It's not because there's billionaires. The problem is the government keeps spending more and more and more money. In January, the Biden administration blew through $499.25 billion. So, in a single month, the U.S. government spent nearly half a trillion dollars. That, by the way, was also a January record. And this story repeats month after month after month, year after year after year. The U.S. government couldn't borrow and spend like this without an enabler. And it's got one, the Federal Reserve. I often call the Fed the engine that drives the biggest, most powerful government in history. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Mike, biggest, most powerful sounds a little bit like hyperbole. I don't think it is. I'm being absolutely serious. Consider the power That the US government wields globally. And I'm not just talking about military power, although it is unmatched. Perhaps more significant is the economic power the United States wields. The world literally runs on dollars. The dollar is the reserve currency, it is the dollar that drives everything in the global economy. Now, that's starting to change a little bit. There are a lot of countries that think maybe the United States should have a little less economic power. So, you know, it may not be that way forever. But right now, the U.S. wields that kind of economic power. Now, you could argue that the British Empire, maybe the Roman Empire, wielded similar power. But neither of those mega-governments had nuclear weapons and the ability to literally destroy the world. The power of the United States government is arguably unmatched in human history. And think about the amount of power that this government has over your life. Now, you know, we think of the United States as the land of the free and the home of the brave. But the U.S. government literally tells you what kind of light bulbs you can have in your light fixtures and how much water you can have in your toilets. That's quite a bit of power over your life, right? And even if the relative power of the U.S. government compared to past regimes is debatable. The size and scope of the U.S. government isn't. One metric we can use to compare the relative size of governments is how much money they spend. Based on IMF data, the U.S. government spent $7.66 trillion in 2019. The next closest country was China, with outlays of $4.14 trillion. Now, that was 2019, but I'm going to guess that gap hasn't closed too much, especially given the exponential increase in U.S. government spending during COVID. Now, obviously, China has a lot more people than the U.S. The disparity in the scope of government becomes even more apparent when you compare the two countries' per capita spending. The U.S. spent $20,674 per capita in 2017. China spent a paltry $2,735 per capita. In other words, the United States' limited constitutional government spent nearly eight times per capita than China's socialist state under the people's democratic dictatorship. So, hyperbole aside, I'm pretty comfortable in calling the U.S. government the biggest government in history. And if I'm wrong, it's still got to be in the top five, right? And this would be impossible without the enabling ways of the Federal Reserve. Without the central bank's machinations, the U.S. government wouldn't be able to borrow and spend to the extent that it does. Congress wouldn't be able to sustain deficits running in the trillions of dollars year after year. Instead, it would have to rely on direct taxation and borrowing smaller amounts of money for shorter terms. Because higher taxes are politically untenable, the government would be forced to constrain its spending. That would put a natural check on both the warfare and the welfare state. Without the Fed, there would be a natural check on the size and scope of government. But with the Fed running its monetary operations, the government can borrow and spend far more than it otherwise could. And that means the government is bigger than it otherwise would be. To understand the role of the Federal Reserve, you have to understand how we pay for government. The first crucial point is government is never free. I think a lot of people think it is, but it is never free. Every penny that the government spends comes out of your pocket or my pocket. It comes out of the people's pockets. Direct taxation serves as the most honest funding source for governments in this scenario the government collects money directly from the people and then uses that money to pay for its programs and all of its expenditures kind of a money in money out system right i say it's the most honest way to fund government because we can see exactly how much we're paying right we understand when we're being taxed that our income is lower we can clearly see the impact of government spending on our personal lives the problem for the government is direct taxation isn't particularly popular right the government can only raise taxes so high before we start to get angry we start to balk as a result you're far more likely to your politicians talk about cutting taxes than raising taxes i mean we might need to raise taxes to pay for these programs but nobody wants to pay more so politicians aren't going to say that. And the thing about it is, is even politicians who push for tax increases, mostly Democrats, they always emphasize that we don't mean we're going to raise taxes on the middle class or the poor. And that is by far the majority of the population. There is no way that anybody is going to fund the government just by taxing the rich. In fact, I, I ran the math. It's been a number of years ago, but like you could take all of the money from all of the billionaires in the United States, and it would run the government for like, I don't know, six months. So this notion that we're going to raise taxes on billionaires and somehow fund all of this spending is just, it's silly. And the politicians know it's silly, but here's the thing. Politicians, what do they care about? They're just All they care about is getting elected, right? That's their goal. Get elected. So they're going to tell people what they want to hear. They're going to promise more for less. They'll never deliver more for less. They deliver less for more. But, unfortunately, people buy into this political silliness and you can see what we get, right? So because government can't really tax to the extent that it needs to to sustain itself, it turns to borrowing. This effectively kicks the can down the road. right? Nobody has to pay today. But of course, eventually, we have to pay the bill. If you borrow money, you have to pay back the people you borrow from at some point. So the taxpayers of the future foot the bill. We might pay for government programs that, that are going on today. We may pay for that 20 years from now. Or our kids will pay for it. Or our grandkids will pay for it. Meanwhile, the taxpayer of today is still on the hook for the interest on all of that borrowed money. Now, borrowing is way more popular with politicians because the taxpayer perceives it as less painful, right? If the government, we, it happens all the time. I'll start talking about the national debt. I'll start talking about borrowing and deficits and people's eyes will glaze over and they'll be like, eh, yeah, I don't care. That's kind of the general attitude. I mean, I think at some level, most people intuitively know having a $34 trillion debt probably isn't a good idea, but they don't see that impacting their pocketbooks the way taxes do. So it's kind of like, eh, we'll shrug and we'll move on and we'll keep voting for these clowns who keep spending all of this money. So taxpayers perceive it as less painful, but... Of course, borrowing also has a natural limit. And the truth of the matter is the federal government has pushed far beyond that natural limit. Enter the Federal Reserve. So, to really get where I'm coming from here, you have to understand the mechanism. How does the Fed serve as the enabler? Well, the U.S. government borrows money by issuing treasury notes and bonds. Banks and financial institutions around the world buy treasuries at auctions that are run by the U.S. Treasury Department. And then after an allotted amount of time, and it can run for as little as months to up to 30 years, you know, two year, 10 years, that's common. But after that time runs out, when the bond matures, the, the lender, the person who bought the bond to get their money back, plus They get interest. So banks and financial institutions who buy these treasuries, they hold some of them on their balance sheet, and then they sell a lot of them on the open market. For instance, a bank might buy a bunch of treasuries and then hold them until the price of treasuries goes up in the marketplace, and then they sell them to another investor for a small profit. The investment community considers U.S. Treasuries one of the safest of all investments. Now, the rate of return, relatively speaking, is pretty low. In fact, most of the time, it's not even keeping up with real inflation. But most people assume the U.S. government will never default Now, I'm not sure that's a good assumption, but that's kind of the way people think. The government won't default. They'll figure out how to pay you back so your investment is safe. Your money is safe. You're getting a little bit of a return with not a lot of risk. So because of this, bonds are a very popular investment vehicle. And as a result, the U.S. government can issue a lot of them. And it does. But as with anything, bonds are subject to the law of supply and demand. If the government issues too many, if supply gets too high, the price of bonds will fall. And conversely, the yield, the interest rate the government has to pay, will increase. Bond yields are inversely correlated with the price of bonds. So the more the price of a bond drops, the higher the interest rate Gets. And if you think about supply and demand, this all makes sense. That higher interest rate that the government has to pay means a bigger profit for a potential investor, and that incentivizes or entices people to buy more bonds. As that interest rate goes up, you know, you might look at a bond and say, I'm just going to get a 2% return, eh, not really worth it. But if you're going to get a 5% return, oh, yeah, maybe that's worth putting a little money in the bond market. So That's what's happening right now as interest rates have risen over the last year. With the Fed trying to fight inflation, interest rates have gone up. Bond yields have gone up significantly. And as a result, that ostensibly increases demand for bonds. So some more numbers to kind of put things in perspective when we're talking about interest rates. Interest on the federal debt came in at 90 or came in 96 billion dollars higher through the first 4 months of fiscal 2024 than the same period last year the government has shelled out 357 billion dollars in interest payments so far in fiscal 2024 again the fiscal year starts in october through that same time period the only category with higher spending was social security That means the government spent more just paying interest costs than it did on national defense, than it did on health care, than it did on roads, than it did on Medicare. It's paying more for interest than anything else except for Social Security. Here's another little bit of perspective to look at it a different way. Rising interest rates drove interest payments to over 35% as a percentage of total tax receipts in 2023. In other words, the government is already paying more than a third of all of the taxes it collects just to pay interest expense. Now, Having the cost of borrowing go up like this theoretically puts a cap on borrowing since interest expense can only rise so high and remain sustainable, right? I mean, if you get to the point where the government's paying half of its tax collections in interest expense, at some point, somebody somewhere's got to say, we're going to have to stop borrowing money here. It's too expensive. We can't do it anymore. So, again, this should put a natural check on the growth of government. And this is where the Federal Reserve steps in. As the government floods the market with more and more bonds, there simply isn't enough natural investor demand to sustain all of the borrowing. So the Fed eases the supply pressure by stepping into the market and buying bonds. This is a monetary operation called quantitative easing. And in effect, the Fed creates artificial demand for bonds in the marketplace. It holds interest rates artificially low. This allows the U.S. Treasury to issue more bonds than it otherwise could at a lower interest cost. So again, just to make it clear, there are too many bonds in the market. The Fed steps in, buys the bonds. This creates demand, holds prices down, keeps interest rates higher. Now, here's the neat little part of this. Here's the trick. How does the Fed pay for these bonds? Well, it just prints money. Now, the central bank doesn't literally print $100 bills in the basement of the Eccles building. And I've had people get angry with me or, you know, I don't know. It's kind of pedantic, but they'll say, well, the Fed doesn't really print money. Only the government can print money. Yeah, I know it's not really printing money. It's shorthand. But the effect of what the Fed does is exactly the same as if they were using a printing press to create $100 bills. The Fed creates digital money and it sends it to the seller. It takes possession of the bonds and then holds these treasuries on its balance sheet. This process is called debt monetization. It's basically taking U.S. debt and turning it into money. Let me try to put this into terms that are maybe a little bit easier to understand. Imagine you have a checking account. I mean, you don't probably don't have to imagine that. I'm sure you have a checking account. So you've got your checking account, and your checking account balance is $5. Like, you're totally broke. But imagine if you could still go and use your debit card and write checks and when you did, money would just magically appear in your bank account out of thin air to cover what you just spent. That's literally what the Fed is doing. It doesn't have money in a checking account anywhere, but it effectively just writes a check and money appears. Money just It comes out of thin air. So, like I said, the effect is exactly the same as if the Fed had a printing press and was like running off counterfeit money. And the impact of this, of course, is increasing the money supply because all of this money that is created through debt monetization is injected into the economy. So, for instance, during the Great Recession in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, the US government ran trillion dollar deficits for the first time ever. This was during the Obama administration. During that time, the Fed expanded its balance sheet by more than $4 trillion. It bought trillions in U.S. government bonds. It also buys mortgage-backed securities, by the way, which has the same impact on the mortgage market. It holds mortgage rates lower than they otherwise would be, creates artificial demand for mortgages. So, the Fed is kind of doing a double whammy with uh, quantitative easing. But right now, we're just really focusing on the impact on the treasury market. So, it ran similar operations during the pandemic. In effect, the Fed monetized every dollar borrowed in 2020. And the federal government borrowed a lot of money in 2020. So, theoretically, the Fed would only hold these bonds on its balance sheet temporarily. You know, and, and that was the excuse. It's an emergency, so we have to do this. And at some point, if it was being honest, it would sell the bonds back into the market and it would suck up the excess money that it created. So eventually that liquidity would come back out of the system. In fact, when Ben Bernanke launched the first round of quantitative easing in 2008, he swore to Congress that it was not debt monetization. He said it was an emergency measure and that it would be unwound. Now, you'll be shocked to learn that it was never unwound. Between 2008 and 2021, the Fed added somewhere in the neighborhood of $8 trillion to its balance sheet, injecting an equivalent amount of new money into the U.S. economy. That, my friends, is a lot of debt monetization. Now, over the last year... The fed has been shrinking its balance sheet it's actually been trying to unwind some of it right it has a balance sheet reduction plan and if it follows that plan for the next seven years it will unwind all of the pandemic era debt monetization won't touch all of the debt monetization from 2008 that's still out there on that balance sheet and of course It's not going to run balance sheet reduction for seven years. In fact, they're already talking about ending it this year. So all of that money stays in the economy, and all of those bonds just stay on the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed has to frequently intervene like this, or the bond market would completely lock up. Without the central bank's big fat thumb on the market, bond prices would tank, and interest rates would skyrocket. It's a simple Function of supply and demand. It's why we're seeing interest rates go up today. The Fed isn't running these operations. There isn't enough demand, and interest rates are rising. There are simply too many treasuries being issued for the market to absorb them all. The Federal Reserve always has to be at the ready to backstop U.S. government borrowing. And even when the Fed isn't running QE, it is still. Often buying treasuries to hold its balance sheet at a steady level. As bonds mature, the Fed buys new treasuries to replace them, keeping its thumb on the market and keeping its balance sheet kind of at a, at a steady level. The only time the Fed shrinks its balance sheet is when price inflation gets too hot, like right now, or briefly back in 2019, 2018. So I know, this is a lot of technical stuff, and some people's eyes are probably glazed over at this point. Here's the question. Why does this matter? Well, when you step back and look at the numbers, it is abundantly clear that repaying the national debt is impossible. It's not gonna happen, not with money that has any real purchasing power. In fact, the debt has grown so large that if we had a market-based rate of interest, the government would struggle just to make the interest payments. So the only way left for the government to fund its expenditures is through this inflation tax. That's what this is. All of this money creation is inflation by definition. Inflation is an increase in the supply of money which is what the Fed is doing when it's buying these bonds. And an increase in the supply of money, a symptom of that, is rising consumer prices. That's why we saw rising price inflation in the wake of the pandemic. The Fed went too far. We're paying the price today in the inflation tax. As the Fed injects more and more new money into the economy, prices go up as the purchasing power of your money falls. The Fed is literally stealing your wealth to prop up Uncle Sam's spending spree. Think about what this means. It means the government needs inflation. Inflation is an intentional policy. The politicians just don't want you to notice it. The problem is the government has gotten so big, it's close to a tipping point. This is exactly why I say the Fed is between a rock and a hard place. This is the context for the entirety of last week's show. This is why I think the Fed is going to abandon the inflation fight soon. It's going to have to go back to backstopping Uncle Sam or the bond market is going to collapse. And if the bond market collapses, well, the biggest government in history starts to teeter. In a nutshell, inflation is a tax. It may not take dollars right out of your bank account, but it erodes the purchasing power of the dollars you still have. The net effect is the same. You can only buy less. So when you look at the big picture, I think it's pretty clear. The government has pushed things beyond the point of no return. The government can't pay down a $34 trillion debt. Even worse, it can't stop spending. I mean, think about it. Is either political party really committed to reigning in spending? I mean, you can argue that the Republicans are better than the Democrats, and that's probably true. But when Trump was elected and the Republicans held both houses of Congress, spending didn't go down. It went up. It always goes up. The deficits went up. They always go up. Trump was supposedly running a booming economy in 2020 before the pandemic, but their trajectory was already for a $1 trillion deficit for that fiscal year, even before the pandemic meltdown. Keep in mind, again, the fiscal year starts in October, so at the point of the lockdowns, so we were already, what, four months into the fiscal year. So Trump was running Obama-era deficits, and didn't even have the excuse of a great recession. And then, of course, there's always an emergency. There's always a pandemic. There's always a war. There's always some emergency that requires more borrowing and more spending, which leads to more quantitative easing and more inflation. My point here is this is what you're gonna get. This is it. We'll have budget battles and posturing and debt ceiling fights and politicians will jawbone about cutting spending or cutting taxes. But out in the real world, spending will go up. The deficits will continue to go up. The debt will continue to grow. And at some point, this will precipitate a financial crisis. You can kick the can down the road, but at some point, you run out of road and this is yet another reason to be prepared. So, I'm going to wrap up, just once again urging you, take advantage of the low price right now of gold and silver. Relatively speaking, gold and silver is technically on sale. It is not priced for what's coming. And, you know, I'm kind of surprised. Gold held $2,000, even with talk of you know, uh, interest rates staying higher for longer. But I keep saying, the real problem is going to start when something breaks in the economy. And at that point, the Fed is going back to quantitative easing. It's going back to rate cuts. Your money is going to keep being devalued. Consider gold and silver. Call 800-800-1865 and talk to one of the good folks over at Money Metals. Or just go to the website, moneymetals.com. You can chat online or you can just order online. But do it today because we're running out of time. That's the sad, hard reality. So that is a wrap for this episode of the Money Metals Midweek Memo. You can get more information about the things that I've talked about today and more over at MoneyMetals.com slash news. And if you want to get the latest news right in your inbox, make sure you sign up for our email list over at MoneyMetals.com. Of course, you can subscribe to the Midweek Memo on your favorite podcasting platform. And make sure you tune into our Market Wrap podcast on Friday. You get a short market wrap. And... A lot of times, you're also going to get some pretty cool interviews by yours truly. Appreciate you listening to the show. I apologize for my raspy voice from time to time. It's already allergy season here in Central Florida, so I'm battling with that. But we soldier on. I hope you have a great rest of your week, and I will talk to you again next week.